Tonight I thought we could reflect on the Buddha. You are familiar with the Buddha image, which we have here on the wall. I thought I would use this image to talk about some of the elements of the Buddha's teaching. Can everyone see down here? It's like an eye chart. (laughs) You can see there are certain postures that the Buddha is sitting in. They're not all the same. And not all of the ones that exist are represented here. This is going to be very spontaneous and it's really my own way of looking at it. And each of us can take the particular pose that each Buddha is sitting in and interpret it for ourselves. These mudras or postures are meant to help us. It's not something that is static and you just come in and bow down to it automatically and then forget about it. I use the image of the Buddha as a way to remind me of my own intention as an alms mendicant, as a monastic, as his close and devoted disciple, Um, father, mother, and teacher, icon of virtue, wisdom, and compassion. So many things that it means to me. So for each of us to use this image, not in an automatic, auto-reflex response, but every time we see this image, we can contemplate, what does the Buddha mean for me? The word Buddha, Bhutto, in the Pali language, refers to enlightened wisdom or the awakened wisdom that each one of us is capable of realizing, fulfilling in our own lifetime. Even if that might sound impossible, if it were impossible, the Buddha would not have achieved it and he wouldn't have taught it for 45 years. He wouldn't have encouraged us until his old age. So, I like to share some of my own thoughts about what these particular postures might mean when you look at them. We'll start with this, this one here. You can see that the two hands are being held up and the fingers extended. The Tibetan way of doing this is a little more intricate. When we see this type of a posture, we can think about the Buddha as a teacher. Can you see it? as an instructor, someone who walks a particular path, learns it, investigates it, realizes it, fulfills it, knows it in depth. So then he becomes qualified to instruct others and to show the way. Just like if you drive from here to Winnipeg or somewhere up north, excuse my geography, I I don't drive to the Gatineau and somebody was a tourist and they'd never been here in this area then because you had been that way you could give them specific instructions much better than a map you could caution them at every little turn and say now look out for this signpost and that signpost 
when we see this kind of posture, we can think about the Buddha as a teacher who is expert because he has fully fathomed all the tricks of the mind, all the dark places that a human being can get lost and stuck in. He know, he knew, he discovered, shed light on, and overcame, was not overwhelmed by, learned how to use the mind and the strength of the mind to go beyond, to reach the destination or the, the goal of the holy life of human life. Therefore, he's the most qualified in this particular line of work. And it's, it's an art. It's like becoming an apprentice. We enter an apprenticeship with the Buddha to teach us. And since the Buddha is not present physically, that the teachings are alive and they are carried out, carried on. The wheel has been turning. The teachings are available to us. So we lend ear to the instructions. And then we have to follow them. Ah, <laughs> there's the rub. Do we follow them? We come and listen and we hear the teachings and some of us can recite the teachings. We know the sutras. We, we study and read the books, but we have to follow the instruction. To follow the instruction doesn't only mean to hear it, listen, say, oh, I like that. Absorb it, then we have to do it. We have to enact it. The Buddha lived his teaching. He wasn't only a scholar. He wasn't only expert in explaining the path and in showing others the way, but he knew he was expert because he himself had accomplished the way fully. Therefore, there's a great authenticity in his power as one who can teach and instruct and encourage us to actualize this teaching. Then we can ask ourselves, do we or don't we? And why or why not? What, what are we waiting for? Let's go on to this pose. You can see here that the Buddha is still sitting in the meditation posture. That's the basis. Hand is up. This represents fearlessness. Fearlessness. It's not stop. It is stop in the sense of Stop the nonsense. Stop the rubbish in the mind. Stop the diffusive behavior that scatters us into so many things we can't focus anymore on what's really meaningful and important. It also means the fearlessness which is stop the fear. Fearlessness doesn't mean that you get rid of fear. Fearlessness means that even when fear is there, we can be fearless, we can be courageous in the face of it. But we have to have listened to the instruction and understood, shed some light on how all this happens in our hearts by practicing the instruction until we realize that fear is something that we can be present with, we can work with. And the Buddha's encouragement is to be fearless to accomplish this path. Even when people tell us, oh, don't, don't do that. Why, why go to Quaker House tonight? I, I have a very good video to show you on my TV. Or, is it be a nice meal. 
that we can share together, some entertainment in town. And then you would feel maybe intimidated by their opinion, going to sit silently and or you, you feel discouraged or dispirited in life to practice, then the fearlessness is always using the instruction to come back to the present moment. What do we do when we meditate? We have to be fearless to sit with the mind. As soon as we sit down and listen to the busyness, the noise inside the mind and the heart, it's enough to scare anyone. <laughs> We want quiet, but, and you keep waiting, I was looking, yeah, waiting for the bell. <laughs> Is it going to work? <laughs> now, here's another fearless. These keep repeating. Let's find, oh, this is a very lovely one. The two palms together. Two palms together to me means faith. The faith, because when we make Anjali like this, in this tradition when we chant, we're chanting praises, it's a sign of reverence, a sign of devotion, it's also a sign of helplessness because when you have your palms together like this, unless you're a karate expert, you couldn't hurt anybody. You have your hands tied and you can't get into mischief. And it represents a kind of one-pointedness in the mind. I'm going to do one thing and one thing only. I'm going to purify myself completely in, in this life, in body, speech, and mind. That's a whole li livelihood. That's a whole path. That is the path right there. So this is like a prayer prayerful, devotional posture, representing the faith. Faith that this path is worth devoting our effort to. This instruction is worth dedicating ourselves to and committing ourselves to enacting in our daily lives through meditation, through conscientiousness, through practicing an ethical commitment, bringing virtue into daily choices, moral commitment, and through purifying even our thoughts which we do through meditation practice. That's a one-pointedness. If we have scattered goals and aims, if we have mixed kind of aspirations, such as get as much pleasure as possible, or satisfy our passions as much as possible, or, or be free and careless, and carefree, thinking that that will bring us happiness, then it's hard to really hold that one aspiration that would purify us in body, speech, and mind as the highest thing. We become confused with all the mixed goals that are leading us in different directions. So the traveler who's trying to follow the instruction gets lost because there are different roads, forks in the road, and we keep choosing the fork instead of going straight. So a reminder that we have to be really one-pointed. There has to be an undercurrent in our lives which keeps pointing us back towards what is going to uphold us the best. This is a lovely posture. You can see that the Buddha is 
sitting here with his robe completely covering him. None of the hands are showing. The body is completely covered. To me, this represents seclusion. That's seclusion of the mind. It also represents protection. We can take that to mean protection and care of the body when it's cold, wrap up in a shawl, in a coat, protect the body from the elements. But it also means that we have to protect our mind. Seclusion of the mind means that we have to protect ourselves from the onslaughts of the world. We have the five sense doors and the minds. The eyes, we see beautiful sights, and we may forget our high aspiration. Or we see intriguing things that we could get involved in, and we get distracted from our intention to spend half an hour meditating every day. We get busy. We lose the seclusion of the mind being drawn out, drawn out by the world. And the world is full of so many interesting things that will take us here, there, and everywhere. We keep coming back, coming back, pointing ourselves in that one direction. This is how we create seclusion in the mind. Like when you sit to meditate, you are constantly coming back to the breath or to your meditation object. This gives the mind a signal No, don't wander out, but stay present. It's a sign of commitment. And then the mind loses interest in the things outside and develops an intense interest in investigating what is in here, what what can I discover within the heart that is so vast. If we don't seclude ourselves by keeping out all the, the stimulations through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the taste, the touch sensation, or thought, thinking past and future, then how can we possibly see clearly enough through the fog of the mental formations to understand the stillness of the depth of our hearts? Just like if you're a swimmer and you only stay on top of the lake or the ocean, and you don't dive down deep, you can't discover the pearls and treasures that are in there. They will be discovered in the depths, not in the superficial, shallow waters of the heart. So this seclusion of the mind is also a protection, because when we're attacked, and I would say that we are attacked, it's like an assault, by such things as anger, even annoyance, irritation, boredom, weariness, restlessness, distraction, we've mentioned, fear, desire, wanting. We want, we want anything, anything you can think of. A new job, a new partner, a, a new kind of meal. Been to that restaurant enough times. The, the wanting takes so many forms want a new career, or a new house, a new car, a new computer program. There's so many ways that we want, and it's never enough. More money, beauty, youth, success, comfort, joy, 
these things in themselves are not bad. They're not intrinsically wrong, but they are flawed and they don't give us the true lasting peace and joy and stability and security that we really long for. Seclusion, therefore, is the great protection that gives us the space in which we can cultivate this path so that we can follow the instruction fearlessly, stopping the mind at every turn so that we can go deeper and discover what is waiting to be discovered. Ah, this is a wonderful one. This is the posture, the mudra of the Buddha touching the earth. This one in the corner. Some of you may have um, the statue of the Buddha in this posture, touching the earth. This is a way of facing Mara, the deluder, the trickster, who keeps, it's really the mind, all the illusions of the mind that keep drawing us away from our commitment or trying to challenge us. This isn't what you want to be doing. Come on, there's so much to get from all these experiences in life. Don't sit there with your eyes shut trying to fathom what's in the depths of the heart. Waste of time, Mara would say. But no, the Buddha put his hand to the earth and said, I have the right and the authority to sit here, to remain seated here as the witness. And it is the witness, of course, when we take on this posture of being the witness in our meditation practice, then the truth begins to reveal itself. We are in the present moment. We're not allowing the mind to go anywhere at all. We're restraining the senses. We're shutting all the doors down, leaving only one point at which we can attend to our experience. And that's through the single-pointed focus on the presence of this moment. One point is secluded, fearless, and following the instruction. This is a very, very important one because the challenges get stronger. That's why sometimes uh, people who've been practicing for 10 or 20 years, they come and chat with me about practice and feel very discouraged sometimes. It just seems to be getting harder and harder. Yes. Like a mountain climber, you think you've been over so many bluffs, crests. You're at quite an altitude and you think that the top is just within your reach. And then suddenly you see this huge mountain in front of you still to go. An enormous peak left. You, fused up so much energy already and it seems endless. But then we take this posture not to be deterred by what we're perceiving as far away and unreachable, but just to remember, look how much work we've already done to purify ourselves. And we just keep going. It's a perseverance. It's a total commitment. We can't be lazy or weak-willed. We can't be thrown off balance. We might be temporarily and then we remember, 
always remembering. This is what mindfulness helps us do. Right mindfulness is remembering to come back, attend to that presence, and bring it to life just by remembering, just by recommitting to our highest aspiration. That will get us through. It will. And we have the right to remember. We have the power to remember. We have the strength to remember. And it is our legacy, after all. Why shouldn't we do this? Have I gone through all of them? I forgot this very important mudra, which I actually hadn't seen before until I looked very carefully at this tie-dyed tanka this evening when I was bowing it. I noticed this mudra and I thought, I wonder what that means. And looking at it, it seems to be the thumb held linking the two fists together. I take this to mean that there is a connection. We have to connect ourselves, the heart to the mind somehow. Even within ourselves, just as we cannot disconnect ourselves from the world as monastics, we depend on the kindness and generosity of our lay supporters, all of you. Without you, we cannot do this practice. Without each other, we cannot do this practice. Sangha, spiritual community, connection. Five fingers of one hand. Without these, without the senses, we shut them down. But then we have the power of the five faculties and we use the body as our field of practice. We don't kill the body. It's not by repression but by understanding the process of how the physical body works in connection with the mental, the mind. So the connection between mind and body, the connection between the heart, the inner process and the physical process, the connection with each other of us as monastics with the lay sangha, we are community. And our connection with the whole world, we are inseparable, indivisible. We all have a universal commonality and communion. Communion, C-O-M, is with. Union, being with, communing with each other. It's becoming in harmony, growing together in peace. Through the application and commitment of the mind, to the journey within its own reaches, we commune internally. We develop the highest intimacy with our own truth. And then this wisdom is revealed to us and we become brighter and brighter, more awake, more pure, more true to ourselves, to each other. So we fulfill on that level and this this meditation practice, which is the largest image of all, is the kernel of all of these works. It's the core, the beginning, and the ending. It's through this entry into the gateway of our own awakening that we fulfill the highest potential that each of us has. Meditation sitting down in the center of our own temple, in the heart. 
every time we sit down in this posture, we are committing ourselves to fulfilling this path of awakening. This is just one interpretation of what it can mean when we reflect on the Buddha as teacher and as an example to us, not just a historical person. Of course, we have this confidence because he was actually someone who lived, walked this planet, and died just like human beings do. So we are human beings. We are on this planet. We have the transmission. We have to take it and go with it, walk with it, do it in our own life. Bowing to an image, see yourself always in that image. See the possibility. I bring this up tonight as a way for each of us to leave here reflecting on what we're doing in our lives. What kind of life am I leading? And of course when we're meditating it's very important for us to develop the awareness of what we're doing as we follow the breath, as we try to steady the mind, stop the thinking, concentrate, give up thought, surrender to the present moment. Developing awareness, cultivating the path internally is possible and is fortified only to the extent that we do that when we get up and walk out the door. So just as while we're meditating, we keep reflecting and seeing where is the mind abiding? What is the present abiding? What is the quality of attention? What are we experiencing? How are we experiencing it? And what are we learning? So that we can do this in life, not just as an exercise on a Friday evening. Without that connection of practice to breathing in and out as we walk, sit, work, run, bathe, eat, travel, sleep, wash, enjoy company, even as we speak, to be aware and to see how am I behaving? Am I living harmlessly? Am I practicing kindness? How much kindness we practice is a sign of how much we are caring for ourselves too. It's reciprocal. To the extent that we don't take care of our own minds, we cannot take care of each other. To the extent that we take care in this way of our own minds, we take care of each other. If we take care of each other, we take care of the world. It's that simple. But it's so hard. Therefore, we mustn't be discouraged. We must just try. Put greater effort into this, which is all important. All important. Precious. Those of us in this room who are older can tell you 
who are younger how fast this life goes. Yes, you've heard it and you won't, you won't believe it. But think back to the happiest time in your life. What was the happiest time in your life? Is it now? If it isn't, it could be. But if it isn't, whatever you think it is, is gone. It's far away. Can we bring that sense of this is the best time in my life, best moment of my life? It's the only moment of our life. The future is uncertain. The past is dead. Sure, we can remember it, but we can't live in our memories. We have to bring life to the present moment totally, awaken to it totally, be aware completely of how we are with things as they are, and see where and why happiness isn't coming for us. And work towards true happiness is possible here and now. It doesn't depend on youth. It doesn't depend on health. It doesn't depend even on life. A person who is on their deathbed experiencing their very last breath can also be in a state of complete happiness. You may have met someone in that situation. I have. It's breathtaking. They're losing their breath. It's on their last breath. But it's breathtaking. That's the miracle for us to work towards. I'll stop there. I welcome anyone to ask a question. Yes. That's right. Thank you. He's doing the same thing. This is an anchor to this self-authority, not the self, the selfish, but the selfless posture of we have a right to be here in this present moment exactly as we are. We don't need to change what we truly are. We only need to distill out, let go of, drop, allow to pass away the rubbish that we cling to, the false illusions that we hang on to, believing that that's what we are, that's what makes us alive, that's what makes us special, and it's all empty, impermanent, changing, not who we are, not what we are. This posture, in that mudra there, you can see the Buddha has the right hand. Here's the most important aspect is the fearlessness, but we are also stabilizing ourselves, trusting. It's a sign of confidence and faith. Trusting this knowledge of what we truly are as the gem of our mind's awakening. And we do that with courage, going forth, not hanging out in the shadows, not 
treading water and just getting by with as little effort as possible in life doing the minimum but trying our absolute best that requires pulling out every ounce every vestige of our effort and strength even if we feel tired or not particularly inclined in the most difficult times somebody is not behaving well or or making a critical comment and it burns it's the ego again and again and again can we just come back to seeing through the ego which deflates it in front of our eyes so that we can sit with the truth of what we are and we are not that ego we have to shatter it again and again and it will constantly re-arise like the mara you know mara in the scriptures is described as having armies not just a few henchmen <laughs> literally battalions just waiting in ambush around every turn and that's what life does turn a corner and we just got our life organized so that everything is perfect and suddenly something happens we get a diagnosis or someone else gets a diagnosis we fail an exam we lose a job a partner decides time to leave someone declares bankruptcy and that affects us too or whatever particular situation that you find yourself in old age sickness it's if life hasn't presented it yet it will it definitely will this i'm not being morbid it's just the reality anyone else yes in your tradition which would be the most not important but most i guess it is an important obstacle on the path that you would try to avoid i think the main obstacle is greed it's the wanting mind tacked onto it piggyback on greed is ill will ill will in fact comes out of greed they go together greed and the wanting in the heart the desiring mind is self obsessed and self cherishing and always looks for what it can get for itself we want something and when we want it we focus our energy on getting it if it's unwholesome it doesn't matter we'll find a way to get it sometimes even unethical ways which is complete obstruction to developing ourselves spiritually and then ill will is the opposite of that but it's still wanting it's wanting to get rid of what we have that we don't want or what's coming that we don't want trying to avoid situations or conditions or the people that that are upsetting us we try to have control built into that greed and ill will is delusion and delusion is big delusion is the most difficult one because delusion doesn't know what it wants the deluded mind is lost it doesn't know what it's experiencing 
and it's lost in wanting and not wanting. There's no clarity. It's chaotic, ambivalent, ambiguous. It's a very big obstruction, and these create a little cluster which hangs together because of our wrong view of who we are. The cluster is kept solid in our perception by our belief in a self with which we are identified and that we believe is in control. Yes. I think patience is a very important one. Talking can help up to a point. When I was a child, my parents, I remember the imprinting of their behavior. What they did had much more of an effect on me than what they told me. Even though they did that, they lived by what they told me, Maybe not 100%, because we're human beings. But I was most impressed and inculcated through the pervasion of their own behavior and interactions with the world around us during those years. That was the impact that left its mark on me much more than their words as a small child. And then, of course, later in life, when we started to have philosophical conversations, then their reflections had a lot of weight, certainly. I don't know if that's helpful. You have to be so patient. And kids are very lucid. They see through. If we're saying things that we're not actually able to live, then they, they won't listen. They won't give it much weight because they see. They see us as we are, not as we wish we would be. This teaching is glorious and worthy of listening to. Not that it comes from a person, but we all gather together and create sacred space by sharing and listening reflecting on these teachings that have been passed down for two and a half millennia. So it's for all of us to feel what a wonderful gathering. It's so rare in this world. It's a little island of peace. And when we leave here, we take that with us. It's portable.